I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 12, 2017. Coming up, Dr. Simon Meloff, a noted researcher in the science of aging, talks about some new findings in that field. begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Astronomers on Earth have been able to detect thousands of planets around other stars by looking at the very, very slight dimming of the star as the planet passes in front of it. That only works if the orbit of the planet is aligned just right as viewed from Earth. Now, some astronomers have turned exoplanet hunting on its head in a study that instead looks at how an alien observer might be able to detect Earth using those same methods. They find that at least nine exoplanets are ideally placed to observe transits of Earth. The scientists identified parts of the distant sky from where various planets in our solar system could be seen to pass in front of the Sun, so-called transit zones, concluding that the terrestrial planets Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, are actually much more likely to be spotted than the more distant gas giant planets, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, despite their much larger size. Even though the larger planets would block out more light as they pass in front of a star, the smaller planets would be more likely to transit the star because they are closer to it. They also have shorter orbits, so their transit would be more frequent. To look for worlds where civilization would have the best chance of spotting our solar system, the astronomers looked for parts of the sky from which more than one planet could be seen crossing the face of our sun. Of the thousands of known exoplanets, the team identified 68 worlds where observers would see one or more of the planets in our solar system transit the sun. Nine of these planets are ideally placed to observe transits of Earth, although uh, none of the worlds are deemed to be habitable, so we don't think that there are any beings staring back at us from those places. However, the team estimates that there should be approximately 10 currently undiscovered worlds which are favorably located to detect the Earth and are capable of sustaining life as we know it, and could be wondering if life exists on our planet. This research was published in the journal Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. We think of medieval warriors as big, although actually they weren't. Strong men on horseback. But new research by a team from two Swedish universities shows that a 10th century Viking unearthed in the 1880s was not a man. Early archaeologists assumed that the warrior, buried with sword, axe, spear, arrows, knife, two shields, and a pair of war horses, was a man. But a study published last week in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology reported that the warrior was a woman, the first high-status female Viking warrior to be identified. 
Excavators first uncovered the battle-ready body among several thousand Viking graves near the Swedish town of Burka. But for 130 years, most assumed it was a man, known only by the grave identifier BJ581. A few female Viking soldiers have been unearthed over the years, but none had the trappings of high rank found in the Burka burial. Not just weapons and armor, but also game pieces and a board used for planning tactics. In recent years, reanalysis of skeletal characteristics had hinted that the corpse might be female. Now the warrior's DNA confirmed her sex, suggesting a surprising degree of gender balance in the Vikings' violent social order. Opening this coming Sunday, September 17th, at the CU Museum of Natural History, a newly remodeled space where young visitors and their favorite adult can dig, design, doodle, and more while developing their curiosity and make meaningful connections to the natural world. The new and improved play space encourages children to touch real museum specimens, share a story from the curated collection of children's books in a cozy corner, and spend meaningful time together and make new friends. The Henderson Museum is located on the CU campus in Boulder. See their website for hours and exact location. Also on the science calendar, next Tuesday night, September 19th, Denver's Café Scientifique will host astronomer Konstantin Tsang, whose presentation is titled, The Search for Meteorites in Antarctica, How to Bring the Planets to Us. In his presentation and subsequent audience discussion, Dr. Tsang will talk about meteorites, hunting for them in Antarctica, and what we can learn from them. The Denver Café Scientifique will be at its new home at the Blake Street Tavern in the heart of Lower Downtown on Blake Street between Park Avenue and 24th Street. More details at cafecicolorado.org. Last week, I spoke with Simon Melov, a biochemist who studies many aspects of aging in worms, mice, and humans. The aging field is replete with new and exciting discoveries, and Simon's work epitomizes that. Welcome to the show, Simon. It's a pleasure to have you here, and I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about aging, because I know you've been working on this topic for quite a few years now, and unlike a lot of people, you've worked in a lot of different model systems and used a lot of different approaches. So could you just start off by telling us what aging and what senescence is and how you like to approach it? Well, I, I tend to think of uh, aging as a as really a decline in function at multiple different levels. Uh, I mean, certainly people are aware that with the passage of time, your ability to do things goes down, uh, and that, of course, is exemplified by uh, e- most most straightforwardly by your your inability to run a hundred meters in uh, you know record breaking time compared to when you were. 16 or 17 or something like that. Um, that type of process occurs uh, at every level throughout our body as we age, uh, and there are really good um, 
sort of figures and, and numbers demonstrating different physiologies in our body decline at different rates. So, you know, your cardiovascular peak is probably somewhere in your 20s or 30s. Kidney function, similar. Um, you know, cognitive function, uh, also fairly similar. Some other systems, maybe not so uh, straightforward, uh, but, but all systems tend to decline uh, with the passage of time, and that even extends down to the cellular and, um, you know, subcellular level. Yeah, and so speaking of cardiac, let's um, maybe take a little detour here because I noticed that one of the things you've worked on is aging in the cardiac system in fruit flies. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, that was a fun little project I did in collaboration with a a lab down in uh, UCSD uh, whose specialty is actually cardiac aging in in the fly. Um, I... I actually was very surprised to learn that uh, uh, flies actually have a, um, a circulatory system and a, <laughs> and a, and a beating heart, um, which, believe it or not, uh, the same as ourselves, Im- improves with exercise. So you can improve the performance of the the, uh, the fly heart through exercise. Um, and uh, so that's what this group specializes in. It's a, a group run by a guy called Rolf Bodmer, who is you know, one of the world expert, experts in um, you know, cardiac aging in, in uh, the fly. And uh, uh, so he's developed a tremendous system for investigating this uh, at multiple different levels. And uh, you, know, you have all the wonderful tools available to you working uh, in, in the fly uh, in terms of genetics and, and you've got a nice short lifespan. You don't have to wait years and years and years for, for outcomes as you do with uh, mice, for example. Um, and so um, there, we, we ended up like carrying out this project where we were looking at individual hearts and the gene expression in individual hearts with age and so forth. And so it was just a fun little technical challenge to see if we could carry out molecular biology on single hearts isolated from individual animals. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, um, with the passage of time, your ability to do all of these things um, increases in, in terms of uh, technology development. Uh, what I'm referring to there is is the pace of technology development with regards to the molecular biology and the tools we have available to us is, has continued to to sort of keep pace with almost with computer technology. So there's just incredible things you can do at the genetic level now, um, you know, the whole genome level. Um, most people are aware of the, the Human Genome Project and the explosive uh, information which has come out of that whole arena and all the technologies associated with it. So it's quite possible now to investigate uh, genomic function and, and gene expression and things like that at the level of the single cell now. And so I think there's a lot of interest in this from an aging perspective because, of course, we're made up of cells and and, uh, things happen at the cellular level and you want to be able to figure that out at the individual cellular level instead of always relying on the average over millions and millions of cells, which is traditionally how we've done things in the past. Right. And for those listeners that might be a little skeptical about using fruit flies to study aging and cardiac function in humans, it's important to note that we share a lot of the same genes and many of the genes that you were able to find in heart cells being altered with age and with exercise, I presume, in these flies. We share a lot of those same genes with the flies. 
Absolutely. I mean, this is this is one of the things which uh, science is really good at is uh, is using uh, very simple systems to model m- more complicated systems, such as in ourselves. And and the conservation and and the sort of the um, the maintenance of these pathways between the different uh, organisms is very strong, and oftentimes we will work out a pathway or how something works at the molecular or cellular level in one of these simple systems first, and then it won't be till years later that we we actually confirm all of those original findings in in um, you know mammalian systems such as ourselves. So it's. It's a it's a very very powerful tool in the scientific armamentarium, if you like, where we can exploit and use simple model systems like C. elegans, the simple worm, or Drosophila, the fruit fly, to develop um, ideas and experiments and find out things in those organisms, and then slowly test ideas and discard them until you have a, a pretty good grasp of what's going on with regards to the molecular biology or cellular biology of a particular pathway and then later on confirm that it works very, very similarly in ourselves. And so that's a, that's a wonderful um, tool uh, which we as scientists use very routinely in multiple different disciplines, uh, yeah, including yeah. aging. It sure is. And speaking of figuring out how certain events take place, you mentioned that the heart function in the flies, like in humans, improves with exercise. And it's exciting to see that you know, I've, I've known for years that exercise is good for me, but now we're starting to understand the basis for what that is. And I know you've done some work on that as well. So can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I think uh, uh, exercise, by and large, is still actually pretty much of a mystery in terms of how it works in ourselves. Uh, you're absolutely right uh, that in terms of Things which we have control over in our lives, uh, one of the things you should do uh, is exercise regularly because exercise is is literally a a trillion-dollar pill. I mean, it is something which has such profound effects uh, on us um, when we we do it regularly um, that uh, it reduces the incidence of age-related disease across the board. I'm not just talking about cardiovascular uh, incidents and problems uh, which are lowered by regular exercise. I'm talking about cognitive improvements. I'm talking about improvements actually in the performance of your joints, uh, performance literally across the board. I mean, there's almost nothing you can't point to in terms of a functional um, system in our bodies which is not improved when you exercise regularly. And uh, that, that's why I refer to it as a, as a trillion-dollar pill. It's a relatively simple behavioral manipulation um, which you don't have to do in, to excess. I mean, you can just exercise you know, two to three times a week at, at some level, and uh, you, you will accrue benefits, uh, including increased lifespan. The data is now pretty good that you will increase your lifespan if you exercise regularly. Um, and uh, you will have less incidence of disease. And so it is a remarkable behavioral manipulation, which uh, if we could mimic pharmacologically, uh, I think a lot of people will be very happy about that. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for <laughs> but, sure. <laughs> but um, we, we're, we're still some ways uh, away from that. But, but, and, and it may be that there is never a simple pill you can take which is as good as you know, exercising three times a week. So, so there's a there's a um, 
a tremendous benefit to be had from doing this. Uh, the difficulty is that many people find it um, you know, hard to exercise on a regular basis, whether it's through uh, you know, some particular health problem they have or, or just a, a reluctance to, to, to get out and do stuff. And so uh, although we're well aware of the benefits of exercise, uh, we haven't been particularly good at uh, conveying that message at a very high level to, to the bulk of the population. Uh, most people are aware that exercise is good for you and they still don't do enough of it. So it's, it's a hard message to get across um, at, at a very good level. Uh, but, I, but I think if we could somehow manage to convince people to do this, either through you know, earlier stages of education in the school system, for example, uh, then, then the entire population would benefit uh, very, very substantially through long-term savings in healthcare and things like that. That's absolutely true. And one of the interesting things I found about it that is absolutely counterintuitive to me is that, you know, as you exercise and work harder, you increase your need for oxygen. And oxygen causes or can cause all kinds of problems in the cells because of its very reactive nature. And what's, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we, we, we're, we've worked on this area for uh, quite a number of years, and, and there are a number of, um, shall I say, myths floating around about uh, you know, how deleterious free radicals are um, to, to our bodies. I mean, you're absolutely right. We breathe oxygen and we burn it in conjunction with food to produce energy. And an unfortunate byproduct of that is a free radical, one particular free radical called superoxide, which is essentially oxygen with an extra electro, uh, electron. That has the potential to damage things, react with things, and do nasty things. And we, we know this through a whole variety of genetic studies that uh, you know, free radicals can be really bad for you. Um, but they're an obligate part of living in our atmosphere. And in fact, being alive, you have to produce these free radicals if you're, you're going to survive. So we've evolved all these natural defenses against them. Now, it's true that as we get older, to some extent, the damage from free radicals um, uh, is uh, more readily detected in, in our tissues. And uh, it's still an open question as to whether or not that damage is um, a really serious driver of aging or just uh, an epiphenomena, something which is just there and is maybe a red herring. There are people in the field who think that uh, you know, free radical production in our cells is a, is a key driver of aging, but there are also uh, other scientists who think that it has nothing to do with aging. And so the jury is still out on this, and it's a complicated question, um, unfortunately muddied by a lot of very difficult assays, uh, which many labs have trouble running at a, at a sort of a high level of sophistication. I think, again, technology is coming to our rescue in this regard, and it's going to clarify a lot of the, uh, the open questions around this area uh, relatively um, easily. Um, and that's in the next few years, I think, we'll have all this resolved. Uh, on the other hand, um, there's one area which I think um, the literature is actually quite solid on with regards to um, uh, a particular, uh, shall I say, urban myth. 
And that's the idea that if you exercise harder, you produce more free radicals. Well, it's actually the exact opposite. Yes, that's what's counterintuitive about it. Yes, that's right. So the more sedentary you are, the more radicals you produce. Um, and that, just think of this as um, if you have uh, uh, a wire, imagine your, your, your sort of um, your pathways for producing energy are, are a wire, and the current is going along this wire. Well, if you're using up all the current, the, the electrons traveling along that wire don't have any opportunity to be donated to oxygen. They're, they're used up straight away because you're exercising a lot. But on the other hand, if you're sitting around watching TV, having an, an extra large gulp soda, um, then the electrons tend to have nowhere to go. So they're going to go to oxygen. They're going to make free radicals. So the more sedentary you are, the more likely it is you're going to get reactive oxygen species damage, and the more likely it is that something bad will happen in those cells. Um, now, that's a vast oversimplification of what's going on, but it is true that um, the, the, the idea that uh, you know, if you work harder, you produce more radicals is absolutely wrong. So, so you, can, you can dispense with, with that particular urban myth. Right, right. So I've got to ask you, Simon, have you taken up exercise? Uh, I, so I, I never, I never have not taken up exercise. I mean, that's an okay, easier answer. Okay, good. So, good. um, in, in fact, uh, I think you'll, you'll be pleased to know I've just started climbing again. So there oh, you go. Oh, hey, I'm so <laughs> impressed. Yeah. So I, I always am doing something, you know, the, the difficulty with trying to, to, uh, do exercise, um, you know, over your life and, and view exercise as a lifelong habit uh, is you have to keep it fun, and that's at least in my mind. Yes, um, Because you don't want it to become boring and staid. Um, but I do think of exercise as like cleaning your teeth or showering. You know, if I don't exercise, um, you know, people are going to look at you weird, you know. I mean, you, right, you, you, right. You, would, you, would, you would be considered a little odd if, you know, if you, you didn't do someone, those oh, other I, things. I haven't yeah. showered in three yeah. weeks. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> really? You haven't showered in three weeks? What about brushing your teeth? No, I haven't done that in six months. You know, I mean, it's just a basic part of uh, human health. That's how I sort of view right, it now. Right, right. So. so one of the other things that people have identified actually quite a while ago as beneficial in terms of mitigating aging effects is what's known as caloric restriction or dietary restriction, namely cutting your calories, not to a starvation level, but nonetheless cutting them back and i wondered what you thought about that and what's known about the mechanisms of that well i'm i'm a little on the um i say i'm a little on the periphery with regards to to that particular area of research i mean we've known for about probably it's coming up to a hundred years actually um, that reducing caloric intake in various different uh model systems uh, appears to extend lifespan. But how I think of this is a little different than, than most of my colleagues do. Uh, there's been a lot of interest and effort in this area to try and tease apart the pathways which, which modulate this fairly robust response across many species. It doesn't work in all species, but most species it does appear to work in, at least in the laboratory. Uh, and, and so how I tend to think of this is most of the time in the laboratory we have systems where they're maintained in a way which is not really very natural or optimal for their health. Let's take the mouse, for example. In the mouse, we have 
um, in the lab what's called an ad libitum feeding situation. This means the mouse gets access to food 24-7. It has a, basically an all-you-can-eat uh, um, a diet um, all the time. Now, in the wild, mice don't live like that. Uh, you know, right, but we kind of live like can. that now, too. We never used to, but now, you know, we do have access to food 24-7, and a well, lot that, of people do take advantage of it. You're right, but then you're talking about obesity versus people right, who have um, right. a more more modest caloric intake. Right. And that the, the health disadvantages of that are well known. Yes. What I'm saying or suggesting is that is that in the lab, when you have a mouse which weighs maybe you know forty grams or so, uh, that when you put it on caloric restriction, it's getting an appropriate diet. It's getting an appropriate caloric intake. So in effect, you're comparing an obese animal and saying this is the normal animal, and then when we cut the calories to this animal, it has... Uh, uh, you know, it loses weight and it lives longer. Well, of course it lives longer because it's, you know, you're, yeah, you're, you're optimizing yeah. the health. And so, you, you know, in a sense, you're working with a short-lived model because you've artificially created it and, and you've called it the, the normal mouse when, in fact, it's an obese mouse. So, you know, I, I, I should say, though, that I'm in the minority on this and, and many people um, tend to, to think that... Uh, you know, caloric restriction is a tremendously useful model, and I don't want to take anything away from that. Uh, there has been a lot of work in the area, literally tens and millions of dollars uh, invested in this over the years. And, um, you know, uh, apart from being able to say that, uh, uh, you know, if you cut calories, uh, it's beneficial, I, I'm not so sure there's a bigger take-home message at this point. But I, I could be wrong. Right, right. Well, Simon, this has been really interesting and we are just about out of time, so we will have to stop now, but maybe we can continue this at another time. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Simon Melov from the Buck Institute for Aging, talking about some of his studies in the field of aging. I, for one, am hoping he soon finds some fixes for this universal problem. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Alejandro Soto. This week's show was produced by Beth Bennett and engineered by Maeve Conrad. Additional contributions by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music adapted from Simon and Garfunkel. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you could subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Chip Granditz. <laughs>